Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Sometimes you don't even realize how stressed out you are, right? Until something happens that brings things to a head. Like me the other week before the holidays. I was getting ready for a trip to Germany with my family, and we all needed COVID tests to get on the plane. And when I got the results back, I started sobbing. Even though the tests were negative, I couldn't stop crying. And that's when I knew, wow, I am really freaking out about this trip. But letting it all out made me feel better. When we're stressed, upset, feeling down or off, most of us have things we do to decompress, things we find therapeutic. Something that is therapeutic to me is watching deep cleaning videos from cars to dirty, dirty apartments and houses. It is very, very soothing. Maybe it's working with your hands. I'm an artist, so whenever I'm in a slump, if I like just start drawing, it kind of like brings me back a little bit, you know? Or doing something to change your mood. I love to dance and sing, and on Friday nights I have a meat party where I turn up the music from the 90s really loud and I dance and I cook in my kitchen by myself. Maybe you just need to get away. Driving anywhere and just singing my heart out and just experience the music and just enjoy the space in my car. It's just the change of scenery and that the music is awesome and I'm allowed to, you know, be who I want and feel what I want and then go back to reality. But sometimes those mood boosters don't do the trick and it feels like... Maybe it's time to talk to somebody, a professional. When does a person need a therapist? When is therapy helpful? Because I think a lot of us sort of like trudge along and do our thing, and maybe somebody could help with something, but it's it's hard to know when to get therapy. Anybody and everyone could use a good therapist, right? Especially in the midst of a pandemic. That's relationship therapist R.G. Allen Wilson. She's been working in the field for over 20 years. And you don't necessarily have to have so many things wrong, although therapy is designed often for people who have, may have severe mental health issues. But that's not necessarily the case. If you feel like something's a little off or you feel like you just need a safe space to talk to people, to someone that's trained, anyone could use someone to talk to. And what does the training allow the therapist to do? You know, sometimes it seems like, could I just talk to a friend? Could I talk to somebody I trust? What distinguishes the therapist from just a good listener? So, you know, all of us probably in our own minds are probably pseudotherapists, right? <laughs> However, you know, just listening is one step towards the healing process. But you also, as a therapist, in terms of your training, have to be in tune to the trauma. And we're also trained to be able to sort of really put the dots together, the pieces of the puzzle together from the past, the present, and hopefully the future. We start off really with the training of learning intervention, learning how to assess, learning how to diagnose correctly. But the other thing I would say is that we're a good investigator because we believe that our clients are the expert. So if I'm listening as a friend, I might listen with empathy and compassion, but you are listening with the ear of an investigator who is looking for puzzle pieces in a way. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to put it. You know, we say you know when pieces of the puzzle just don't fit, the therapist helps you to fit those pieces together. It may be painful to put those pieces of the puzzle together. You may not like the information. You may have some trauma related to those pieces, but they also will create a pathway to your healing. The demand for therapy has increased during the pandemic. More people are seeking counseling than ever before, but the process can still seem a bit opaque. What actually happens during therapy sessions? How does it work? And what kind of therapy is the right fit? On today's episode, a look at therapy. Therapy. 
First up, therapy got a tech makeover during the pandemic. More therapists started to offer their services online so that they could still serve their clients, and therapy apps became more popular. From Talkspace to BetterHelp, apps that offer virtual therapy promise easy access and affordability. Two issues that are major barriers to getting mental health treatment. Does the promise of reaching more people hold up? Micah Hazel looked into what happened in Reno when the city decided to take a bold step toward providing free virtual mental health services. Sarah Zobler learned about therapy apps in the most non-techy way possible. A Talkspace billboard she spotted while driving in Reno, Nevada, where she lives. I knew therapy and I knew apps, but I had never even thought that such a thing existed. She'd been looking for a new therapist for a while. As a rabbi and a mom, she didn't have time to search forever. The reality of therapy here in Reno is that waiting lists are months long. I have kids and the scheduling of when my therapy sessions would be would often either interfere with work or interfere with me actually being home for my kids. Therapy apps like Talkspace claim to have the answer to this problem, making therapy a text away. It was sort of like matchmaking. Sarah downloaded the Talkspace app, put in her recommendations, and the app suggested a therapist. Turns out, she found the perfect match. I hit it off so well with a therapist on Talkspace that I stopped looking for an in-person therapist here because I'm enjoying Talkspace a whole lot more. She loved the ease of Talkspace, not having to rush to in-person appointments, and being able to vent to her therapist in real time. I'll just go on a text flurry and I'll like fill up her app with all of my rantings about this thing that happened Wednesday night, and I'll get something back from her Friday morning, but it will be really thoughtful. The real kicker for Sarah, though, was that Talkspace is essentially free to anybody who lives here in Reno, which is just bonkers to me. The deal began with Reno's mayor, Hillary Sheevy. She'd been looking for therapy after losing her brother and sister at the end of 2020, but found that appointments were all booked up. Ultimately, she ended up finding help through Talkspace. At the same time, Reno was faced with a significant chunk of expiring coronavirus relief funding. So the mayor decided to put the money towards mental health. Together, Reno and Talkspace came up with a $1.3 million deal, free access to Talkspace for all Reno residents, 13 years and up for a year once they signed up. My assumption is anything that sounds good or helpful and (laughs) that is related to the internet is probably a scam. That's Topher South, a teacher living in Reno. He says the only thing more surprising than the program being free was that it happened in Reno, of all places. Northern Nevada is a weird place because there's this dual energy where there's sort of a artsy, progressive people who are in touch with their emotions and that kind of thing. And also this cowboy attitude of just keep pulling on your bootstraps and if they snap, super glue them back on and pull harder. The deal was good at reaching folks who had therapists or had tried therapy in the past. As for whether or not it was reaching communities that traditionally couldn't afford therapy, that was unclear. Three months after the rollout, Talkspace confirmed that only around 1,400 residents had signed up, a fraction of the 200,000 eligible residents. Local therapists argued that the money given to Talkspace should have just been given to them, that they were the key to reaching more communities. However, the small number of signups raised a question bigger than Reno. How could therapy apps, with their smartphone requirements and millennial-based marketing, actually reach communities that traditionally can't afford therapy? Tarika Tolliver is a psychiatrist for Novotel Telepsychiatry, where she does remote therapy exclusively. She was happy to hear about the Reno deal. I've never seen mental health talked about so freely. So once you normalize it and make it easily accessible, I think that that definitely helps communities be able to access it and and feel comfortable accessing it and not feeling like it'll be a burden at all. But Tarika says making therapy apps and virtual therapy accessible starts with making the technology accessible. 
you definitely have to think outside the box here. Not everyone has access to everything. A lot of our clinic partners, they purchased iPads and phones, and then they would loan them out to any clients that needed them. As for getting the word out to communities that can't afford in-person therapy, Terika says accessibility starts with actually going into these communities to spread the word. This means sharing resources through the places and people the public actually interact with, like public libraries, firehouses, doctors, and urgent care workers. So if they notice that this client may be dealing with depression, maybe dealing with anxiety, just being able to give them a resource. Hey, have you thought about this? Have you checked this out? Do you know that the city is offering this service for free? I think that that is how we reach lower income community. Accessibility aside, whether or not virtual therapy actually works for a person will always be a case-by-case basis. Chofer, who's in his 30s, wasn't virtual therapy's biggest cheerleader after trying it out. I'm going to text at this person I haven't met about my darkest part corners of my brain. I don't know, that feels weird. Comparing it to more traditional therapy, I definitely felt that I had a closer like, personal relationship with my in-person therapist. This is Sarah Richmond, one of Reno's residents. Having a, an hour-long session face-to-face at time, I think, definitely adds up to help building a rapport. I did feel that that was a little bit missing from the app. It's one of the most common complaints with virtual therapy, how difficult it is to build a rapport through a screen. Psychiatrist Terika Tolliver says it takes work to make the virtual setting feel as natural as in person, but that it can be as easy as taking advantage of the simple fact that the patient is where they're comfortable. So I've had clients that cannot get out of bed, and we've had a session right there when they're in bed. So it's literally meeting the client where they are, but still giving the care that they need. That story was reported by Micah Hazel. And here's an update from Reno. About 3,100 residents ended up using the free service before the year-long deal concluded at the end of 2021. We're talking about therapy, what's out there, what works, and who has access to it. Now, from the new frontiers of technology back to the roots of therapy, all the way back to Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis. And just a warning, this story may not be suitable for young listeners. Jonathan Shedler fell in love with psychoanalysis in a way that sounds pretty cliché. He was studying economics in college, but he felt drawn to a cool and interesting professor teaching psychology. And I would just, you know, practically, you know, sit at his feet and lap up whatever little tidbits of wisdom, you know, he would drop. They became friendly, and then one day, Jonathan told the professor about a dream that his girlfriend had had. And the dream was that the two, she and I were in a car together and we were driving, we were going somewhere and we kept driving over bridges, over, over water. And then the scene, the scene changed and we were in a store together, a hat shop, and in the hat shop I was trying on different hats one after another. And there was more to it, but that's about as far as I got before the professor inter- interrupted me. He says, water represents birth. He says, crossing over water, crossing over bridges, means avoiding birth. Trying on hats in the hat shop, covering your head with a a hat, symbolizes covering the head of your penis with a condom. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, the dream is about your girlfriend's wish to avoid getting pregnant by having you use a condom properly. Jonathan was totally blown away by this analysis because what the professor didn't know was that Jonathan and his girlfriend were really stressed out over the fact that her period was late. I I, I mean, if his words had been accompanied by celestial trumpets at that moment, it, it wouldn't have had a bigger impact on me. And at that moment, I thought... My God, it's true. (laughs) All this Freudian stuff, you know, you hear different things. It's not science. It's been superseded. It's, oh my God, it's true. And I came away with this feeling that if there are people in the world who understand things like this, I have to be one of them. 
Thirty years later, Jonathan is a psychoanalyst and a researcher, and he's dedicated a lot of his career to showing that psychoanalysis remains relevant, that it helps people, and that the modern version looks very different than what people might imagine. Liz Tung has more. Okay, let's start with free associating for a second. If I say psychoanalysis, what comes to mind? A long couch. Climbing on an analytic couch. Unearthing. Progress. What do you think that means? A patient free associating about his dreams. This therapist with a very dull but yet stern look on their face. Yes. Go on. Wondering if it is covered by health insurance. And mom stuff. Yes, modern day psychoanalysts have heard these things too. The, the silent, disengaged, older white man. This is psychoanalyst Stephen Kuchuk. And he's heard pretty much all the stereotypes about psychoanalysis. Multiple times a week, laying on the couch, talking about how your mother messed up your life, with a practitioner who is using very outdated theories, disproven, outdated theories. Outdated theories like penis envy and the Oedipal complex, or the idea that homosexuality in men was caused by overbearing mothers. They all sound completely ridiculous today. But others of Freud's ideas have remained, and today form the thread of what makes psychoanalysis psychoanalysis. Here's Stephen. It's looking at what's going on in the unconscious, outside of our awareness, and the ways that patterns repeat themselves from childhood on throughout the life cycle. Conflicts, hurt, anger, trauma, even some things we might not remember— They all have ripple effects that shape who we are and that sometimes cause problems. The idea with psychoanalysis is to deal with these problems by getting back to their root. All of which, Stephen says, sprang from Freud's big epiphany, which might seem obvious now, but in its time completely transformed psychology. The idea that physical and mental illness could be caused by ideas and thoughts and feelings was absolutely revolutionary. I also talked with Jonathan Shedler about this. He's the guy who told his professor about his girlfriend's dream. Today, he's a psychoanalyst and a researcher. I asked him the same question. What is it that makes psychoanalysis psychoanalysis? And he put it this way. The fundamental insight of of therapy is that we don't fully know ourselves. None of us do. There are things that are kind of off limits to our thoughts. We, we avoid things. We split things off. And the work of the therapy is to expand what we can think and know and feel and experience, to become freer in our own minds, and therefore freer in how we live our lives and how we connect to and relate to other people. But the question of how analysts and their patients get there is another big way that psychoanalysis has changed. Think back to the stereotypical analyst that Stephen described. The silent, disengaged, older white dude who just stares back at you while you're pouring your heart out. Every so often, jotting a few notes and going, hmm... I sometimes joke that when I trained, all of my instructors' and supervisors' offices were beige. Beige. Everything was neutral tones. Stephen trained as a classical analyst back in the 90s. And he said back then, this attitude was pervasive. Everything was neutral. And the idea was you weren't supposed to show anything that would reveal anything about your personality. Stephen says there's actually a philosophical reason for the whole cold fish routine. In Freud's day, analysts were conceptualized as something like a blank slate, the reason being a central psychoanalytic principle called transference. That's basically when patients project their feelings about someone else onto the therapist. And replaying these things in the treatment room becomes a very direct way to resolving difficulties and healing. So, for instance, let's say the patient had a critical and cruel parent. They might come to interpret the therapist's silence as them being critical and cruel. Once that's out in the open, they can start working on those feelings and those patterns of interacting. But that can only happen, at least according to classical psychoanalysis, if the analyst is a totally blank slate. 
This is still a model that some psychoanalysts use. But on the whole, Stephen says, most schools have moved away from the myth of the neutral objective analyst. For one thing, because no one can be perfectly neutral. But also because trying to be that way can be harmful to the therapy. Attempting to be neutral and hide oneself is terrible for the therapist. It actually squelches some of their diagnostic abilities because part of what a, a good analyst relies on is their own physical and emotional perceptions to understand some of what's going on with the patient. And when we're trying to squelch who we are and keep it out of the room, a lot of energy goes into that that would otherwise be available to just listen and understand and engage in a real relationship. So psychoanalysis has changed and evolved in a lot of ways since Freud's day. But there's still one big hurdle that it faces, a reputation for lacking in scientific evidence. The question of evidence became especially big starting in the 1980s, in part thanks to efforts by insurance companies to cut healthcare costs. Here's Jonathan Shedler. You know, the healthcare system and health insurers in particular absolutely hate this. They want to shoehorn therapy into a, into a particular kind of medical model where somebody comes in and they get a diagnosis and the diagnosis is the problem. Insurers want specific evidence that psychoanalysis works. As in, are there studies showing that specific doses of therapy can fix specific ailments? like 10 sessions of therapy to cure anxiety. I would call that first aid, not, not treatment. Real treatment is about why are you depressed? What is it about who you are and how you live that is making you vulnerable to depression? Is there something that's sort of woven into the fabric of your life and your relationships right, that is giving rise to these feelings? And can we address that? Can we address the underlying causes? And that's a very, very different way of thinking about what this work is about. Jonathan thinks we shouldn't think about therapy in such a medical way. He calls therapy a process of self-discovery, not a prescription you can just pop for a few months and feel better. Now, other approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy might seem like they do work that way. But that's partly because CBT's been studied way more than psychoanalysis. So it's gotten a reputation for being the evidence-based therapy. But Jonathan says the research that has been done on psychoanalysis is solid. It shows that it can produce long-term change for the better, especially when it comes to the treatment of depression. The available evidence that we have about psychoanalytic therapy tells us that the benefits not only last, but for many people, the benefits actually continue to grow after the treatment is over. Which brings us to my last question. If we accept that psychoanalysis works, how does it work? I asked Jonathan that question, and his answer surprised me. And it turns out that the brand of therapy, the, the specific you know, techniques, really don't account for much in terms of explaining the outcomes. The thing that accounts for the benefits of the therapy are actually things that have to do with the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the patient. The relationship is at the center. Jonathan says relationship in this context means something very specific. It's not about how well the analyst and the patient get along. It's about having a shared understanding of the work they're doing together, of what their goal is and how they're going to get there. But more than that, the relationship between the analyst and the patient is the therapy. It is the work itself. So the therapy relationship becomes a kind of a, a laboratory and a sanctuary to see and recognize and understand what happens in relationships with people that goes wrong. And ideally, a place where those patterns can be reworked. That story was reported by Liz Tung. Coming up, a fear that became bigger and bigger until the only way to overcome it was to face it. It sounded like the worst thing in the world I could possibly do. That's next on The Pulse.
This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about therapy. Dara Lovitz was an anxious child, and as long as she can remember, her fear is concentrated around one issue. She was terrified of anything and everything related to vomiting. I would do everything in my power to avoid it at all costs. Like the time a classmate got sick on their bus ride home. He was dead to me after that. <laughs> I ignored him. I wanted nothing to do with him. I didn't even like, when I was exercising, to run by his house. If we drove by his house in a car, I would hold my breath. This type of fear is called emetophobia. It's an anxiety disorder. Why people focus on that specific issue is unclear. Dara doesn't remember how it started for her or why, but she's had it as long as she can remember. When she got older, she avoided parties because people might drink too much and get sick. She made sure any TV show or movie she watched didn't include scenes where people throw up. It became all-consuming, and Dara became a master in avoiding more and more things. So, for instance, if you're out to dinner and somebody gets sick after dinner, you'll want to know what did they eat, and then you'll avoid eating that thing ever again. You know, or maybe you'll avoid eating at that restaurant ever again. And it might have been a stomach bug, but your brain doesn't work that way. It just works to eliminate all possible danger. But there was a moment when she knew things had to change. She was in her 30s and taking care of her newborn daughter. She vomited on my shoulder and I called my husband to come and get her. And then I passed out and I realized I really need to, I need to make a change in my life. I can't be the kind of mother that is not conscious when her daughter needs her. She started looking around for help and landed on an approach called exposure therapy. It sounded like the worst thing in the world I could possibly do because it was exposing me to what made me fearful. I mean, I'd spent my whole life mastering avoidance and now I would do the opposite and it just sounded awful, but I really didn't feel like I had a choice. Exposure therapy has really bad branding and marketing around it, because the name itself is not very comforting. That's the therapist Dara worked with, David Yusko. He says while the name might be scary, the therapy itself is a structured relearning process. It's more like wading into a pool than being thrown into the deep end. People learn how to define their fears and triggers and the emotions that come with them. Then, little by little, they're exposed to some of what they're afraid of. And so what exposure therapy allows a person to do is, in the presence of their emotion, relearn that their feared consequences might not be what they think they are, that they can actually tolerate and manage their emotion in the presence of those triggers more effectively than they thought they could. Think of it like a ladder with rungs on it. And each rung needs to be a little bit more challenging than the rung before it. And so we work our way up this ladder, working on harder and harder triggers, confronting them and uh, mastering them until we ultimately conquer the hardest of all. For Dara, the latter started with watching YouTube videos. First, cartoons like South Park, where a character called Stan gets sick every time a girl he likes talks to him. You know, you would just see, hi, Stan, and then blah, hi, Stan, blah, every time. And so I would just watch those videos over and over. This was homework she had to do every week. She would write down her reactions to the videos she watched and watch them again and again until her reaction got weaker. She moved on to videos with actual people in it. And then she discussed her progress during her sessions with David. And with Dara, it was interesting because noise was a lot harder for her, the retching noises and the sounds. And so what we did with her was we first watched the video without noise then we watched the video with sound. Dara did 15 sessions and stayed committed to the process, even though it was hard. And how have you been since? How are you now? I mean, I'm great. I would never say I'm cured because I think I'm wired as an emetophobe. I, if somebody says they threw up, my immediate instinct is to take two steps away from them. I sort of have this emetophobic instinct that I have to work to counter. One hallmark of her recovery, remember how she passed out when her daughter got sick? When that happens now, I am definitely conscious and definitely present for it. 
David Yusko says the approach requires maintenance on occasion when fears pop back up. But generally speaking, it's very successful. I wanted to ask him about the name, exposure therapy, since he had mentioned he didn't like it. If you could rebrand it, what would be the name that you would give it? I would like to try to take the concept of exposure out and something more like, you know, reclaiming your life or, you know, something that's inspirational and motivating and encouraging um, versus something that activates fear right away. David Yusko and Dara Lovitz have written a book together. It's called Gag Reflections, Conquering a Fear of Vomit Through Exposure Therapy. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about therapy. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. For a lot of people, their emotional state is deeply connected to current events. The pandemic, racism, gun violence, police shootings, climate change. It's a huge part of what makes them feel anxious, unsafe, or angry. With polarization and political tensions running high, these topics can become a minefield in families, in relationships, and at the therapist's office. When those topics come up in therapy, what are therapists supposed to do? Do they reveal their own thoughts on a topic, take a stance, stay quiet and listen? Jad Slayman looked into the ethical tensions this brings up. The idea that therapists are supposed to be a blank slate, leave their personal opinions outside and just sit back and listen, Minneapolis therapist Patrick Daugherty stopped believing that years ago. You know, that's just bunk. That's just a fantasy we have. The first time he decided to take a stance was the day after the mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Florida where 49 people were murdered. And that morning I just sat at my table and just wept and I just, it was so clear to me that I have to bring this up because it was so disturbing. He wrote an open letter and put it out in the waiting room. He doesn't remember exactly what it said, but the gist of it was, we can talk about this. It, it was a clumsy attempt of saying, you know, the world is in chaos and it's affecting most of us. Patrick's basic philosophy became this. Police shootings, the far right, terrorism, they are affecting you in profound ways in your everyday life by way of affecting your emotional well-being. And so it's, for most people, it's just like, oh my golly, why isn't this common dialogue? If the world is affecting us, Patrick thinks we have to talk about it. That means diving into divisive issues. It means letting politics into the therapist's office, an idea that was unthinkable for therapists only a generation ago. These days, Patrick is even upfront with clients about who he is politically. So I'm a passionate liberal and very open about that. In fact, he believes therapist politics sometimes have to be obvious. I think people need ethical and courageous therapists. I think it's an imperative. You have to do it. But what happens when a politically upfront therapist meets a client with opposing politics? Patrick tells me about one. He came to his office reluctantly. Christian counselors had failed him, and he was coming out of his third failed marriage. When it got hard with him is when he came in and started really talking that uh, demeaning stuff about immigrants or women. Patrick ended up calling out his client like, hey, you gotta cool it with that stuff or we're not gonna work. The client listened and kept seeing Patrick for quite some time. But this episode illustrates a contradiction in the mental health codes of ethics. You know, we say in therapy all the time, we want to accept who the client is. At the same time, we say you have to change the client because that's why they're in therapy. That's Mitchell Handelsman, a professor of psychology and ethics at the University of Colorado, Denver. He says the point of ethical codes isn't to tell you what to do, but instead how to think about problems. Therapy is at its heart a relationship. It's not a lecture or a scolding, but at the same time, some therapists like Patrick feel an increasing responsibility to correct their patients' opinions on, say, women or immigrants. Mitchell says the ethics codes don't actually spell out what to do here. The vast majority of therapists, studies show, tend to be lefties. 
Mental health issues don't discriminate, though, with people of all political stripes dealing with things like depression and anxiety. So how do blue therapists make that connection with red clients who are very different from themselves? And by the way, this controversy has existed for a long time in terms of religion. That is, there are more atheists among psychotherapists than among the general population. And the question then becomes, can somebody who does not believe in God do therapy with somebody who does? Nowadays, therapists are dealing with a political divide instead of a religious one. And part of what I think happened is that politics has become part of identity in a way that things like religion were before. That's Bill Doherty, a family therapist and co-founder of Better Angels, a nonprofit that aims to bridge the left-right divide. Bill does a very specific type of therapy. He deals with family breakups and estrangements. I'm never speaking to you again sort of stuff. In his field, there's pre-Trump and post-Trump. Pre-Trump, these breaks were usually caused by some kind of interpersonal conflict, disparaging a partner, cheating, an argument that went too far. But he says after Trump came into the political picture, things got different. I was confronted with people who had been married for a long time who said where somebody was threatening divorce if their spouse voted for Trump. And then family members cutting each other off refusing to go to Thanksgiving dinner. Bill says all of this boils down to one process, polarization. The other guys aren't just wrong about this issue or that. They're 110% wrong and they're evil. It's a force the therapy world isn't immune to. He tells me about a recent psychological conference where a speaker made the case that any acknowledgement of progress or improvement in race relations in the U.S. was a betrayal to the progressive cause. It's a pretty bold statement folks might find controversial in many circles, but not in Bill's. I think there's a kind of uh, evangelistic fervor that's going on in the therapy world, the therapy professions, where you you can't even debate the topic like that. That kind of polarization that shuts down conversation and debate, it makes therapy difficult. He gives me an example. Let's say a white client comes in and starts throwing around racial slurs during a session. He says most therapists can and should address it, draw a line, saying, hey, this type of talk isn't acceptable. Increasingly, though, Bill sees mere political positions carrying the same weight as open slurs in the mind of some therapists. Let's say a white guy who part of his problem is job stress and maybe he's lost a job and he's having trouble getting another one. And he says something like, you know, I'm a white male and, you know, they want to hire people of color and and I don't think it's fair. There are some people in my field who would view that as a racist statement. And I think there is a big ground in between somebody's attitude towards affirmative action and their kind of hateful dehumanizing speech that they would do in front of me. But that distinction is lost in some of the more left-wing literature in therapy. Bill is worried that too much political passion on the side of therapists could lead to lots of people shying away from seeking or getting help. It's why Bill doesn't share his politics with anyone. He says it's easier to find common ground that way. When politics comes up in his office, instead of fighting or trying to shut down a client's political position, Bill's strategy is to burrow underneath it. What is it about you personally, your life and your firsthand experiences that make you feel this way? I interviewed a woman who was alienated from her parents over politics. Her parents were strong Trump supporters, actually, you know, distributed leaflets for him and so on. And she's a strong liberal blue. One of the commonalities I helped her see is that her parents care deeply about politics and trying to make a difference for the country. And she does, too. And that she got some of her passion for making larger contributions from them. He says without more common ground, there's a real risk that therapy, that mental health care, will be considered something that's done by lefties for lefties. And that may already be the case now. I talked to researchers who surveyed patients to get a handle on their politics, and they told me they had tremendous difficulty even finding conservative patients to survey. Does that mean that conservatives have far better mental health? Or 
that the right is being left out. I have certainly had in my practice, people have said to me, I'm a Trump supporter. I hope you don't hate me. <laughs> That's horrible. Randy Freeman is a clinical social worker and psychotherapist and a kind of old school Republican. I liked Ronald Reagan. I liked George Bush. She noticed, even before Trump, that she was the odd one out as a conservative during the Obama years. Like Bill, though, she thinks Trump supercharged things. Disdain increasingly went alongside simple disagreement. A lot of my friends, colleagues and friends, are, are very, very uh, liberal and very judgmental of people who are conservative. So I can't imagine that that doesn't come across in a therapy session. That's what I find disturbing. Lefty, righty, or right in the middle, I asked each therapist what they thought was on the horizon. Are things going to get hotter or cool down? Interestingly, they all said the other side needs to change, or at least has to do most of the changing. But Randy told me she recently held a workshop for colleagues aimed at their depolarization, having therapists look at themselves and their own reactions to clients. She says the turnout was pretty good. A lot of people showed up, which is promising. It means people want a way out of the current political moment, even if that means giving a little ground. For The Pulse, I'm Jad Slayman. A lot of what makes the therapeutic process work is the relationship between the therapist and a client. So what if this is just not a good fit? What should people do? I asked R.G. Allen Wilson about that. She is a relationship therapist. I encourage people, if it's not working, don't stay in any relationship that's not working for you. So if you feel like there's not a good fit after you've begun, then it really is okay to say, like, this doesn't feel like it's working. We don't feel like we're moving anywhere. Like, I think I'm going to pause or even ask that therapist for another referral. And the therapist wouldn't be offended at that? I mean, that's awkward, right? <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. I mean, I'm te I teach people every day how to have courageous conversations. And that means having a conversation with even your therapist. But I'm also encouraging, because I train clinicians as well, to be checking in with your clients. How is this working for you? You want honest answers, because how will you know other than if the person is telling you and if you're seeing them growing. And if you're not seeing them grow, if you're not seeing change happen, then perhaps you're not the right fit. And it's awkward, but that's okay. Therapy is not meant not to be awkward sometimes. R.G. Allen Wilson is a relationship therapist in Philadelphia and the co-founder and CEO of Connections Matter. Can you imagine having a therapist around 24-7, analyzing your behavior, your moods, maybe even your dreams? Nicole Curry talked to a man whose parents were shrinks and whose childhood was interesting, to say the least. Again, this story is not a good fit for young listeners. Micah Tobe's parents were psychologists. Jungian analysts, meaning they were into things like analyzing dreams and exercises that reveal your subconscious or underlying feelings and thoughts. When I was about 25, I realized that my childhood was not the normal childhood. Micah's mom brought these therapy techniques to her parenting style, including processing some of Micah's most intimate thoughts and moments. When I was a teenager, I guess like 16, and I had wanted to have sex with one of my friends. But Micah couldn't quite follow through. He wasn't sure if he was ready. So I told my mom about this because I talked to her about things. She was a student of the founder of something called process work, where you imagine into your problem in a very specific way. In this case, she said that I should pretend to be an erection. So we were in the middle of a park. She said, now, what would you say to me? She was like blocking me. Like it was almost like she was a football player. Like I was the running back and I was trying to go somewhere and she was blocking me. And I was like, get out of my way. Like, I just want to kind of go over here. I want what I want or something like that. Micah admits running around a park 
pretending to be an erection was weird. But he also says exercises like this helped him. What I realized is that in my inner self, I didn't really want to do this with this friend. This process was showing me that that I shouldn't kind of force myself, basically, to have sex with someone who I wasn't really interested in having sex with. That story is a small example of what life was like for Micah. And he says, in some ways, this is what moms do to try and help their kids. Her motivation was always, like any mother's, that she saw a son in pain or struggling through something and just wanted to do whatever she could do to help me. And that often was analyze my dreams or do these processes with me or talk about stuff through this kind of process work or Jungian lens. And I was thankful because she really did help me in many ways. He continued his therapy-patient relationship with his mom into adulthood. But it started to be too much. Micah was in a long-term relationship. He noticed when small conflicts would bubble up between him and his partner, he would seek out his mom's help. But her input was a little overbearing. And this became a strain on his relationship with his partner. When we were living together, we were having domestic issues, like around management of the refrigerator. And famously, one story I remember is that I would never eat the tomatoes if they were a tiny bit mushy. I would always get a new tomato and let the other one rot. She would get extremely upset, and this turned into like a fight. And so then I called my mom, and I was like telling her about it, and she wanted to do a process on it and talk about what the tomato represented and uh, have a dialogue around this tomato. And I think we did that. And then it was like, I feel like maybe my, this is my ex-wife now, might have got wind of it and was super angry that I had been talking to my mom about this uh, (laughs) incident, understandably. And so it's funny how such a small thing like that really opened my eyes. And I was like, you know, I can't do this anymore. Micah explained this to his mother. Every person who has a mom who wanted to help too long has to eventually push back or detach and cut the cord. Micah found a new therapist and learned how to work through his problems. He also had a chance to resolve some of his issues with his mom before she died in 2019. If I tell you my problems, it's only because I'm just sharing my life with you. And we can still do that. We don't need to be this therapist-patient thing anymore. I was at the foot of her bed, and she had cancer, so she was lying in bed, and I was giving her water and just sort of helping her out. And I said, I just wanted you to know that I always really appreciated the help you gave me, even if we sometimes had difficulty around it. I knew that you loved me, and I I just want you to know I really appreciate that you were trying your hardest to be the best like mother you could be. And I don't know if I've ever said that. And then she said, No, it's okay. I knew. (laughs) That story was reported by Nicole Curry. She spoke to Micah Tobe. He is a journalist and the author of Growing Up Young, Coming of Age as the Son of Two Shrinks. We're talking about therapy. And something I wanted to ask therapist R.G. Allen Wilson was... How long should this process last? When are we finished? Typically, I personally am not the brief therapist type of clinician because I I recognize that once people come in for a specific issue and you start peeling back the layers, oftentimes other things come up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like an old house. I happen to live in an old house and there's always something to do because, (laughs) you know, it's, it's had some longevity. And so in our lives, we've had longevity as well. And in that longevity, you're beginning to explore more deeply what the issues are. And as you do that, what you don't want is people to sort of leave the process before they've actually really done the work towards their healing and wholeness. And therefore, they've not gotten the impact and the efficacy and the value out of the work that they've done. So if I can keep your old house analogy going, like, how do we know when this house is fixed up enough? <laughs> when do we end the process? Because I'm, we can always find more things, right? But then there's also probably a point where it's like, okay, I think I'm fine now. You'll know. 
you you'll know and the client will know um, because therapy really is it's an applied science and it's an art so you know you're in a relationship it's a therapeutic relationship with your client and so you're working on the goals together and subsequently both you and your client are going to feel that transformation and that client as you begin to talk uh, week after week after week um, and they're beginning to accomplish their goals. They're beginning to open themselves up. They're beginning to utilize their voice in a different way. Um, they're beginning to feel more confident or if they're working on self-esteem issues, whatever it is that you're working on week after week, you're going to begin to see that transformation and they will too. That's R.G. Allen Wilson. She is a relationship therapist in Philadelphia and the CEO and co-founder of Connections Matter. Why would I spend the rest of my days unhappy? Why would I spend the rest of this year alone? When I can go therapy, when I can go therapy, when I can go therapy. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Jad Slayman. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Our intern is Sarah Kirsten. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.